G'day, G's and P's. Welcome to the last live, late night live, coming to you from Gadigal Land. It's uh, become a bit of a tradition here, dating back, I think, as many as three or four years to take an irreverent look at the year in the last show. And God knows there's oodles to talk about when it comes to uh, 2022. It was the year that uh, Putin, Putin invaded Ukraine, another year where the uh, pandemic invades every, every nook and cranny of our lives, the year of the infamous Oscars slap, the year abortion rights were overturned in the failed state, the year none of us could afford a head of lettuce, and the year a lettuce outlived a British Prime Minister. In fact, my colleague Mark Humphreys, no relation to Barry, incidentally, has done a nice job of summing it up, so I'll defer to Mark. Good evening. Tonight's top story, everything is awful. We'll start now with the pandemic. What's the latest on that? It's awful. To finance now, how's the cost of living? It's awful, Mark. And to our US correspondent, how are things there? It's really awful, Mark. Closer to home now, we've got more awful flooding in New South Wales. What would you say the mood is there on the ground? In a word? If you could. Awful. Well, we're going to try shifting gears now to something a little lighter, thank goodness. We're joined now by our nature reporter, some say the queen bee of journalism. Tell me what's buzzing in the bee world. There's actually an awful new parasite affecting bee populations. Oh, come on, can't we go to someone else, please? <laughs> now, on that happy note, let me introduce our guests. Joining us from Melbourne is James Schleffel. James is the founder and head writer at a satirical news website, which is almost a namesake for him, The Shovel, and he's co-creator of the live show War on 2022, which is touring now. Welcome to you, James, from Parliament House in Canberra. No, that's not the case. We're now talking to Amy Rumikas, who's the political reporter for The Guardian and author of the bestseller On Reckoning. We're talking to Amy from her car. More of that <laughs> a little later. I presume she's had a bit of flight problems. Welcome back to Dana Morse, ABC's federal political reporter, specialising in Indigenous issues and a regular on the Little Wireless program. So um, welcome back to Amy and Dana. And last but certainly not least, in the studio with me, I've got a live one, Rick Morton. Uh, Rick is senior reporter for the Saturday paper, award-winning author, most recently of my year of living vulnerably, and welcome back to you too, Rick. Now, James, I know you've done deep research on everything that happened in the year while preparing for your own show, The War on 2022. So take us back to January and remind us what was happening. Well, it seems like such a long time ago. Years feel like uh, decades at this point in time, don't they? But uh, back in January, we were all lining up for most of the month to try and get PCR tests. Remember that? It was um, it was out of control, and there was. I there was still actually, haven't got mine. I'm you still, haven't got yours. No, I'm still queuing. Well, <laughs> well, I met one guy who actually contracted and then recovered from COVID while he was waiting in the queue. <laughs> that's that's how long it took. Um, but um, yeah, it was all, it was all about COVID back then. Rat tests were impossible to get as well. Um, people were looking everywhere for them, um, and 
And it was also the Australian Open when um, Novak Djokovic got uh, got chucked out of Australia as well. I love the way you pronounce that with such confidence. Did I get it right? No. <laughs> <laughs> How, how do you pronounce it? I don't. I avoid. I, I avoid it entirely. But he got booted out of the place, didn't he? He did, which is surprising because you'd think an anti-vaxxer would have done more research, more of his own research on Australia's uh, visa visa requirements. Um, but there you go. He got kicked out um, of the country, um, and uh, apparently we're seeing him again next year. Would you be kind enough to remind me of the Canberra Freedom Convoys? Oh yeah, well they started in Canberra, but they they spread across the <laughs> spread across the country, didn't they? And and a, a weird bunch of people, really. Uh, the thing the thing that I found fascinating about these these freedom protests is the flags. Like I don't know if you've seen the flags. Like obviously there's Australian flags, but then there's also um, kind of US flags. I saw a Trump 2020 flag at one of the at one of the um, rallies. Uh, my body, my choice flags. There's quotes from the US Constitution. It's, it's a really strange mix of people who don't seem to understand or don't seem to know what they're actually protesting about. Rick, I'm going to use my hypnotic powers to take you back in time to uh, the golden days of early 2022. What are your first memories? Oh, God. <laughs> my first memories have just been like another year of the pandemic. I don't think I can do this because we thought it was over. We thought we were going to have that hot, beautiful summer where everyone looked amazing and got to live their dreams. And, of course, we spent it queuing trying to get those tests and, and having a Prime Minister, uh, Scott Morrison at the time, tell us that uh, he brought the rat tests and everything's fine. <laughs> at the same time, you revealed some very interesting facts about the government's COVID hotline. Please share them. Yeah, well, they essentially outsourced it. <laughs> so they decided that in terms of living with COVID, we're going to move to this new model of the pandemic where rather than us telling you what to do, we're going to make you decide for yourselves. And you can ring this 1800 number. And it's essentially provided by the same people who are doing, you know, Services Australia, robo debt, debt collecting stuff, um, among other things. Uh, and the poor people who were working there had no idea what to do or where to transfer people and no one knew within the government departments who had the information they needed to pass on. It was a bit of a debacle, actually. Are you saying it was staffed by casuals with no training? I, I know that's shocking to hear, but, yes, that is exactly what was happening. <laughs> Dana, does talking about all this bring back terrible memories for you? It does. It takes me back to uh, Melbourne summer, which is where I was at the time, standing on the banks of the Yarra in a moon boot. We won't get into that, <laughs> but had a busted ankle at the time. Crossing on Novak Djokovic for, I think, oh, two weeks straight, getting absolutely eaten alive by mosquitoes uh, and just, you know, waiting on updates from the then Immigration Minister, Alex Hawke, just hanging on every word, waiting for a tweet, something, a sign of life. Uh, that we never quite got. But, yeah, certainly I'm, I'm takes sorry. you back to the bad I, place. I have to ruthlessly interrogate you about the about the uh, moon boot. How did oh. you get it? <laughs> look, there are severe dangers when you volunteer yourself to look after small children <laughs> um, and also when you're as unco as I am and you wear platform sneakers because you're self-conscious about your height. Uh, it's, it's a recipe for disaster and playgrounds are dangerous and where there's a blame, there's a claim, Philip. So you tripped over an ankle biter? <laughs> Pretty much, that was it. Tripped over an ankle biter and busted my ankle. <laughs> okay. Now, around this time, there was the whole debacle over the ownership of the Indigenous flag. 
Yeah, a beautiful, beautiful fig leaf from the Morrison government to say on the day before January 26th, you know what we've done on Indigenous Affairs? We bought the flag. No one really wanted us to, but we bought it anyway. We've spent $20 million uh, and it's now sort of belongs to everyone. Well, not quite. It belongs to the Commonwealth, which when you think about it through an Indigenous perspective, uh, it's big coloniser energy that the Commonwealth <laughs> now owns a, uh, a symbol of Indigenous power and resistance. Well, I, um, I remember you at the time asking why the federal government hadn't handed overship over to an independent Aboriginal body. Considering as well they had the Senate Select Inquiry which said don't buy it yourself, like buy it, spend the money, whatever, but give it to the NIAA or give it to Nacho, give it to an Indigenous-led organisation because pretty basic optics, very bad for the Commonwealth to own Aboriginal people, not good. Um, but, you know, Scott Morrison, being Scott Morrison, decided he'd go his own way and uh, he would keep it for the Commonwealth where it still sort of sits. Um, and, yeah, it's uh, it's an enduring problem. And also, very interestingly, um, you know, we've had some copyright experts looking into the, the sort of purchase around that copyright and what it actually means. And yeah, some big issues with that deal, I think, that are ongoing for the current government. I think the next guest isn't so happy because she's sitting in her car at an airport. <laughs> Amy, what the hell happened? I oh, just, you know, travel in Australia domestically in 2022. It's a familiar story, I think, for most people. Now, Amy, 2022 got off to a bang when the Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, hallowed be her name, refused to smile in a photo with the Prime Minister and people got very, very cross with her. People did get very, very cross with her and I think they need to examine why they got so annoyed when somebody chose just not to smile. She didn't scream or slap him or throw a drink in his face. She just didn't want to be in that photo and didn't play along with a political photo op. And then we had a huge national debate about whether you or not you should smile when you're standing next to the Prime Minister. As, as you talk about that, I can see the image of Grace's face and it's now become a sort of iconic, I say the, almost as the Mona Lisa's hint of a smile. Now, you <laughs> put all your reflections on this in a powerful address at the ANU when you memorably pushed back on the idea of being nice. Yes, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of niceness. I think that uh, being nice or telling people to be nice is just another form of oppression and just basically telling people to, sh you know, shut up. Uh, so I think you can be kind and compassionate and generous, but being nice, it's just a way of just telling people to shush and I think we should definitely push back against it and question why we have all of these social norms uh, where we basically just go, you have to put up and shut up just to make other people around you feel more comfortable. Now, I will, I mean, though, say that the um, for the people who are wondering about how the freedom fighters are going, there are still protests in Canberra outside Parliament House. There are still those flags being waved every single day on the lawns of Parliament House. Oh, there's a beautiful piece of graffiti on the drive-in that says peanut convoy and a big oh. arrow. <laughs> and I laugh every single day because it's me. I am the peanut convoy. I, I, I saw them at the National Rock garden, the Rock Arboretum. 
um, have been a camp out and it was one of the sadder camp outs I've seen in my life actually and I've seen a few. Oh, well, yeah, they spent a lot of time outside the Governor General's house too, a government house. You couldn't like walk around there without being, you know, assaulted by a loudspeaker at one point. So, you know, they are still absolutely uh, hanging out in Canberra and fighting all of the various fights of which I'm not quite clear what their, what fight it is at the moment, but they're very passionate about it. The voice of Amy Ramikas talking to us from her car and uh, that leads us into uh, the federal election, Amy, because women certainly had something to say at the ballot box. They they did and they said we do not like Scott Morrison or the Liberal Party and how you're treating women or these issues uh, and we'd like a change, please. And uh, just 32% of women voted for the coalition, which I understand is the lowest share ever. I don't think anyone listening would be surprised by that, given uh, some of the reactions to uh, what the coalition used to call uh, women's issues, but I kind of think of as white men issues within the coalition, uh, where basically they just you know, uh, heard uh, sexual assault allegations and the Prime Minister at the time, Scott Morrison, needed his wife to explain that in the context of his daughters in terms of how how he would like to act. Uh, we had senior ministers refuse to come out and meet the uh, March for Justice uh, protesters. They, you know, they wouldn't engage with that. Uh, we then had Scott Morrison tell uh, protesters that they were lucky that they were living in a country where they weren't getting shot. <laughs> for protesting. Uh, um, And then, surprise, surprise, they lost women at the ballot box. And I still think there are some in that party room who are scratching their heads and just going, oh, what went wrong? This is uh, Late Night Live's last live program for the year. And we are maintaining that proud tradition I mentioned that goes back two or three years of an annual summary. Now, James, what were the most memorable parts of the federal election for you as a citizen and a satirist? Well, I I think just picking up on Amy's point, I think what actually happened for the Liberal Party is that they dramatically underestimated the number of women in Australia. I think they they had it pegged at something like 10 or 20%, um, (laughs) with the other 80% being... uh, being tradies, I think, and uh, being male tradies. That, if you watch their campaign, that's kind of how it played out. Um, and then also just got obviously obsessed with um, the trans issue as well. So they just seem to be um, just out of touch. Sorry, with, um, sorry, back up on that. Say that again. Yes, they they seem to just get obsessed with uh, with tradies, but also the the trans issue as well. You know, with Catherine Deves coming in as a candidate. Oh, um, I'd almost I'd almost forgotten her. <laughs> oh, sorry to bring that up. Very again. clever play to win other seats other than hers. <laughs> James, we should also remember that Elbow had a a few wobbles during the campaign. He got off to a shocker, didn't he? He couldn't <laughs> couldn't remember the unemployment rate on day one. But you know, how could you possibly expect to be asked a question about the economy uh, during an election campaign? But um, from that point onwards, some of the journalists just went a bit feral, didn't they? Just going for those those gotcha questions. Um, but, I, you know, I thought Scott Morrison was very slick by comparison. Uh, you know, after Albo was asked to name his six-point plan on this and his 12-point plan on that, Scott Morrison flawlessly reciting the, the coalition's zero-point plan on, uh, on climate <laughs> policy, which, uh, which I thought was very, very slick. He um, also had a plan for mowing down children on the football field. Don't forget that one. Oh, that that's a, another a repressed moment. memory. Yes, that great bulldozer. 
poor little kids scattered the, like nine. It was a beautiful, pins. beautiful tribute to <laughs> Boris Johnson, actually. Now, Rick, I know you're at heart a Queenslander, so Always. your heart must go out to Clive Palmer. It does um, constantly, actually. Um, to to lose a national treasure like that, politically at least, is <laughs> devastating. Um, look, I mean, he did get a senator in um, after spending what close to another hundred million dollars in that federal election campaign. Is that campaign. what he spent? Yeah, close to million wow, that's, no, Look, let's be honest. He said he was going to spend close to what he spent in the previous election. And that would have put it up around 70 or $80 million. Um, I haven't looked at what he actually spent in the end, but it was a lot of money because they were outspending, you know, by a factor of three, both the Liberals and the Labor Party. Not so much the Nationals. They barely put up a few cents, actually. It makes me wonder about their fundraising. Well, if that was the high point of the election campaign, what was the lowest for you? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, the Catherine D stuff was just outrageous. It made me very mad and I don't want to make too much light of it. But also there seemed to be this kind of sixth dimensional chess game being played by Scott Morrison and his office where they thought that they could puppeteer Catherine Deves in Tony Abbott's old seat to somehow win a voting block of seats in Western Sydney like they had such a poor opinion of people out West that they might actually side with this horrendously discriminatory campaign. And it backfired. It backfired not not only in Catherine Deves' seat, but it pretty much lost, I would argue, Dave Sharma, um, his seat in Wentworth, Malcolm Turnbull's prime territory, and maybe another Teal seat as well. Dana, one good thing to happen following the election is the commitment to uh, a referendum on a voice to Parliament, but uh, getting there is going to be one hell of a journey. Oh, we got a windy, windy road before we get to a referendum. I mean, it was hugely significant uh, for the first words that Anthony Albanese said after winning the election was uh, an acknowledgement of country and then recommitting that the Labor government stands for the full implementation of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, particularly uh, when Indigenous affairs had just been such a wasteland for the previous nine years. Um, but now we're sort of looking to the future and you can already see the knives are out. The uh, the personal comments that are coming out uh, in the last couple of weeks in particular around some of the main players in The Voice when we're still probably close-ish to 12 months out from the referendum does not bode well for the level of rhetoric and discussion that's going to happen over the next 12 months. I don't know about you, Dana, but I still have a good feeling about it. I still think that come the day people will vote on the side of history. I go back and forward, to be honest. I, it depends who I'm speaking to on the day. And the, the most interesting thing I found out recently, um, because I am not old enough to have voted in a referendum. The last one took place when I was about three years old. So talking to people about referendum expertise, and Anne Toomey is one of those people, the constitutional law professor, and she says, you know, you would usually start out at a much higher place of public approval for a referendum um, because it will significantly get chipped away at before you get to the vote. And I think it's pretty concerning for a lot of the Uluru Statement people that we're starting at sort of a, a mid-60s approval level um, for the voice to parliament. 
and uh, that's not a lot of room to go down over 12 months. The the kind of shining light is that there is still probably around 15% of the population are undecided, so that's where the efforts will be focused. But uh, Shaquille O'Neal gave a 15-second <laughs> appearance at a press conference in favour. Look, Philip, first of all, I would like to congratulate you on the excellent pronunciation of Shaq's name. Well done. Um, yeah, he sort of came in randomly. It was super weird. Promised these videos, approving of the voice. No one has been able to make sense of that appearance since it happened. And also those videos have not materialised. No idea if they're in the pipeline I have called Shaquille O'Neal's manager more times than I care to mention. Um, he may be taking out some kind of, you know, restraining order against me because I am so thirsty for these videos. Where are they? What is going on? You know, was that just a random commitment that was made with no sort of plan for follow-up? Who knows? And super weird that that was sort of the first thing that the government had done post-Gama on uh, the Indigenous voice and, and what their plans were, were let's get former NBA superstar Shaquille O'Neal to come <laughs> and endorse this thing. What? Now, James, not long after the election, we learnt, shock horror, that Scott Morrison was spreading himself a bit thin. <laughs> Yes, we did. It was like another virus, wasn't it? There was like all these variants of Scott Morrison popping up. Um, Very but, good. That's a koala stamp joke. But um, and I'm not even sure that we've stamped them out now. Um, but but look, I. It's almost like we need some kind of rapid antigen test. I think to to check to see whether you've, you whether we hold a government ministry. Because remember, there was that time when even he himself didn't seem to know whether he held them or not. I mean. You know, in that he had a radio interview. He said, I'm not sure there might be some more, there might not be. I mean, imagine walking around um, with responsibility for Australia's fiscal policy, um, for example, and, and not knowing about it. So, because um, he's got long SCOMO, James. He's got long <laughs> SCOMO. Oh, I like that. Um, so, we well, need a, well, we need one a rat of, test. One of the things he took over, which no one seems to have noticed, he effectively took over as Governor General. Well, <laughs> Uh, that's what I'm worried. Like looking forward to 2023, I am worried that he is actually Governor General, and he's uh, and he hasn't told us yet, or he doesn't know yet. But he'll become aware of it and then dissolve the Albanese government. I it, think that's what's on the cards. It would be a great coup, wouldn't it, to do that silently for a year and then just be like, surprise, it's yeah. fine. It'd be the ultimate comeback. <laughs> now, Amy, I was unwilling to pay scalpers' prices for a, a seat at the Scott uh, Morrison censure thing, but I would you be our theatre critic? What was it like? Uh, look, uh, a few notes on Scott Morrison's performance during the censure. Um, not a lot of reflection, not a lot of apology, not a lot of self-examination. Uh, just pretty much summing up his prime ministership, really. I mean, this is a man who was famous for saying, that's not my job, but it turned out, well, yes, half of the government actually was his job <laughs> because he had five ministries on top of being prime minister and he'd also looked into getting a sixth and for reasons only known to him had decided not to swear himself in as environment minister. I, I suppose it was pretty difficult balancing all of his other uh, responsibilities. But I I think anyone who watched the censure motion were probably watching Scott Morrison's audition for the international speakers circuit that he's on um, at the moment because he didn't really uh, dedicate that much time as to why he did it. There's no real reason. There's no, 
nothing that's been put forward that makes much sense. But he did go through, you know, his government's top hits of how he left the economy and how they steered the, the nation through the first year of the pandemic uh, and, you know, how uh, how they had JobKeeper and they saved business <laughs> and, you know, all of those great things. But not a lot of, oh, by the way, I'm sorry that I secretly swore myself into five ministries and didn't tell anyone until I did an interview for a book and they dedicated a couple of lines to it as an elegant solution to a problem nobody had raised. He really knows how to read the room, doesn't he, Amy? <laughs> he does. <laughs> now, another reoccurring theme this year, gang, and I'll talk to you first about it, Amy, has been the floods. Mm. Totally devastating. Lismore in particular hit home with you, I know. Yeah, well, no, Lismore did because um, I grew up on the Gold Coast, so Lismore's not that far away. Uh, and it was just devastating. I mean, we started the year with floods in Maryborough, if anyone remembers, uh, you know, which is pretty unusual just to see Maryborough completely underwater. We saw Brisbane go underwater again. But what we saw in Lismore, the absolute despair and just human tragedy where you had an entire community saying, where is the help? Where, where is everybody? You know, it, we shouldn't be leaving communities like that for weeks to basically get around in tinnies trying to rescue who they can because nobody is quite sure how to activate help. It was an absolute debacle and I think a national disgrace that we were not able to help people when they were in the most dire of situations because natural disasters are no longer new to this country. We're having them pretty regularly and we still don't seem to have an instant response where we can get help to where it is most desperately needed. But fortunately, it's broken our addiction to coal and gas, hasn't it, Amy? <laughs> I mean, has it? I'm, I'm, we've got about 18 coal projects in the works for Queensland alone. Uh, that, that, that doesn't seem excessive. Our 43% target is seems the like a normal number for this country. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. But don't. it's just, it, it, I don't think it has quite hit home the link yet. We know it, but in terms of we're going to have to make change to, to stop these fossil fuel projects in order to try and stop people being flooded two or three storeys up or massive fires ripping through your community every couple of years. Until we actually shift and go, we actually have to stop, we're going to keep seeing this sort of stuff happen and, and, and it, it, it's heartbreaking. You, you're sort of rushing things along. The greenhouse effect's only been fully understood since <laughs> the late 19th century. <laughs> now, Dana, I believe your family in were badly affected by the floods. How are they and everybody in your hometown? Yeah, they were. So I'm from a, uh, a little town called Latrobe on the northwest coast of Tasmania. Um, and they were also yeah, extremely badly hit by flooding uh, a couple of months ago. Um, thankfully, my parents, being um, the recluses that they are, live on top of a hill, um, so they were okay. But uh, the water did go through my brother's place and the real undue strain that put on my parents was he had to uh, move home for a bit. So shout out to them for suffering through. But <laughs> it, it's like Amy said, it's we're addicted. We're addicted to this, you know, economic growth and unwilling to change. And it's these places that 
that get hit by these floods first aren't the places that profit economically off our obsession with fossil fuels. It's places like La Trobe that are dependent on tourism, um, that, you know, have the, the misfortune, used to be a selling point, but the misfortune of living along a river. And it's becoming more and more common. And then the recovery efforts, I mean, you know, Tasmania is the poor cousin of Australia all the time. We are, you know, forgotten about. Um, and then when you look at the recovery, I mean, the, the devastation in Latrobe is still there. The roads are still absolutely carved up. It is still a really big problem, but we don't we don't hear about it. And there's not that national sort of, you know, federal money going in to fix that community. I saw the video you uh, posted of your parents' place and uh, whilst I can't compare with their scale of misery. We live on our farms on a little river, which has become Amazonian, and we've been flooded in or flooded out six or seven times this year. Now, Rick, enter the Bureau of Meteorology, which did a great job, Haven't they a great, a great job year? of dealing with all of this. I understand they uh, they changed their brand. Oh, God. And, and they will tell you that it was not a rebrand, that it's a visual identity refresh. Um, which is a complete lie. Oh, well, I didn't understand that. Well, and I didn't understand the distinction either, Philip, because there isn't one. <laughs> they were saying that, you know, we're not rebranding. But what they were doing was when I first wrote about this and first tweeted about it, actually, they had weeks and months of preparation where they called it a rebrand internally, where they just wanted to be called the Bureau. The Bureau, because it's mysterious. And I think J. Edgar Hoover has that uh, well, copyright. Well, yes, and also the Bureau of Statistics has a little that, bit of a claim to that, this as well. Yes, it does. And statistically speaking, they've got a better <laughs> um, challenge to it, I think. But it, it goes beyond that because the reason all of this happened at the Bureau of Meteorology was because there was this whole kind of uh, clique of people within the agency who decided that it would be a good legacy to leave to rebrand the Bureau, but also while this was happening, they were kind of not these people necessarily, but there was a systematic undermining of the meteorologists um, and a massive amount of overwork, partly because of a restructure at the agency, but also because of, you know, <laughs> climate change. You did a good job writing it on this in the Saturday paper. Now, on a slightly more positive note, young Rick, I think your mum <laughs> used the surge in lettuce prices <laughs> caused by the pro the floods to become a bit of an entrepreneur. Yes, she's now got more iceberg lettuce than Woolworths, I think, at this point in time. She planted, uh, you know, as much as she could in her yard because she saw the prices going up, $10 a pop. Never mind the fact that neither she nor me eat much lettuce, um, but she thought, I could sell it for a profit. and then uh, course, Have the snails permitted her yes, to do so? Yes, the snails came. <laughs> and they were, they were very small snails. And she was, and I, and I asked her, she was one, one in particular, she said, this small snail has been eating my lettuce. And I said, well, what have you done about it? And she said, well, put it this way, he's not going to get any bigger. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, a little wireless program called Late Night Live and we're having our annual summary. My guests are Dana Morse, Amy Ramikas, James Sheffel and Rick Morton. Now, let's go overseas. It's been a huge year for international news, but the UK in particular has had a doozy, which I found immensely amusing with my colleague Ian Dunt. James, were you able to follow the rotating prime ministerships? Well, no, I wasn't because I ducked off to the toilet one morning and <laughs> uh, re-emerged to discover that I'd missed the entire Liz Truss prime ministership. So... 
Um, it was it was very hard to keep up with. Um, it, it kind of made Australia circa kind of 2012, 13, 14 uh, seem, seem pretty uh, sane by comparison. Um, we've only had two prime ministers this year. They've had three. So th- they're winning the Ashes battle in prime ministers this year. I, I miss Boris, though. You must miss Boris, James. I, I miss Boris. I do, from a satirical standpoint, I miss <laughs> Boris. Um, but I wouldn't wish him on the British people for any longer. Um, so it, it probably is a good thing that, that he's gone. Um, but certainly as a satirical character, he, he, was, a, he was a joy. Let's, let's go back to the issue of lettuce because the Daily Star <laughs> famously live-streamed a lettuce next to a framed photo of Liz <laughs> to see which one would last longer. Do you have the results of that photo finish, James? Well, the the lettuce won in a canter. I think um, it, it's it's uh, yeah, it was, very it was fast lettuce. Yeah, wasn't even a contest in the end. Now the other big thing to happen in the UK, in fact, it happened everywhere. It was universal. It was intergalactic. Was the death of QE two? Did you manage to catch much of the coverage, James? There was precious little here on the ABC. <laughs> I, I saw the first six to eight months of it, Philip. Um, 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 I think it's still going. Uh, there, there were some wonderful stories, uh, um, particularly on the ABC. Did a wonderful job, I think. Um, but it was, it was. I think it was like some sections of the media had been waiting for this for years and just had to get all of those stories out um, that they'd, that they've been saving up. Um, Yes, as tragic as it was, it did get a bit painful after a while. But you you and uh, Mark Humphreys snuck in a couple of wonderful satirical videos. I'll never forget that one you did with King Charles trying to use a leaky pen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wasn't that fantastic? I, I think it, it's so interesting, isn't it, that we've we've got this new... We're so used to Queen Elizabeth just being this... Um, you know, wonderful, calm uh, presence. And then all of a sudden you've got a king who who gets annoyed at a leaky pen. And I think I think the facade just it, it just drops. All of a sudden it's it's hard to have any faith, if there was any, in in the uh, monarchy at all. Don't dare raise the issue of the republic that's been absolutely forbidden for the duration. Dana, I want to come to you here because you wrote a butte piece at the time about how Indigenous Australians were uh, reacting to the Queen's death. Remind us of what you wrote. Yeah, I mean, believe it or not, uh, among the Indigenous community, not heaps of uh, mourning for old QE2. Um, it It was a weird thing because... As you say, there was quite a bit of coverage, um, ABC included, and we just sort of forgot that, you know, she was responsible for quite a few bad things, not just in Australia, but in other uh, colonised nations as well. Um, And so I just sort of wanted to get out there the perspective of people um, like Auntie Faye down in uh, Victoria, who is a a Yorta Yorta woman, and she was uh, a young woman when the Queen came to visit Shepparton way back in the 1950s. And um, a lot of the Indigenous people at the time were living um, in humpies, which are like little tent-type things, uh, outside of the town in paddocks. And that was simply deemed too unsightly for her madge to view with her own eyes. So they put up these Hessian screens to basically hide the Indigenous community living in poverty as a direct result 
of uh, colonisation and England's, you know, majesty over Australia. That's that's and the Potemkin villages all over again, going back to, to Russian history. How extraordinary. I didn't know that. Yeah, our own little uh, moment of shame. And so uh, when it came to writing about, you know, what I sort of felt um it was also captured by this moment that happened here at Parliament um, when we had the pronouncement of King Charles as the new monarch. And it was the fact that before we had uh, the Australian anthem and the British anthem and the 21-gun salute, we had a welcome to country by our Ngunnawal and Ngambri people here at Parliament. And it was so weird that they were just welcoming on this absolute barrage of monarchy supremacy onto their lands. And, you know, it's kind of the done thing these days that if you're going to have a big event, uh, you find out whose land you're on and you do an acknowledgement or you do a welcome if you can. Uh, but to have that and then have, but, you know, you're not in control of it. Thank you for welcoming us onto your land, but you're not in control of it because we got this new bloke. Have you heard of him? It's King Charles III. Um, so it was a very strange time for the Indigenous people. Um, and, yeah, it was it was cool to actually be able to put that on paper. Amy, the other major thing that happened this year, of course, was the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the US. We can't make light of this, this one. No, we can't. Uh, and I think it it shines a light on just how how fragile so many rights we take for granted, like, you know, the right over a woman to control what happens with her body. Uh, it, it's, can, it's easily be turned over just with a couple of conservative appointees to the highest court in the land. Uh, we did see that play out in the midterms where, again, we saw young people and women turn out to say, actually, no, uh, we disagree with these decisions. And it was probably one of the biggest things that activated voters during the midterms, uh, at least from, you know, some of the data that I've read. But it also shows that, uh, you know, Australia we tend to think that we've had these rights settled, but we, we don't. And it really depends on which state you live in, uh, how close to a capital city you are, what sort of doctors are in your area, about how easy it is for you to access abortion, which is healthcare. Uh, it's not just done and dusted. It's not just a case of just saying, you know, I, I need this health procedure. You have to go through quite a, a big rigmarole. And I, I think that's something that most Australians probably haven't thought about. Well, you make the point that the Federal Senate has actually established an inquiry into universal access to reproductive health care. Yeah, and, and it's because it's so hodgepodge, uh, depending on which state that you're in. If you need one doctor or two doctors or how many weeks you can access abortion, uh, you know, what what your access to abortion can look like. Is it is it surgical? Are you able to access the pill? That sort of thing. Uh, and it, we tend to think of these things in terms of cities and not how difficult it is for people who live outside of a city to access this sort of of care. And so when we think about, oh, Australia's got universal health care, Australia doesn't have an issue with abortion like they do in the United States, it may not be as an extreme, but it is still pretty difficult. And this Senate inquiry is meant to just basically say, here is what's happening across Australia. We need to find some way to try and make this uniform or at least better. But of course, uh, abortion is an issue for the states. And uh, until very recently, uh, it was still criminal 
in most of Australia. It's only recently in the last few years started to be decriminalised across the states, just meaning that they're not going to charge you for having an abortion. So there's still quite a while to go in Australia. Now, Rick, I'm very proud of the fact that you're sitting in the studio with me while suffering from withdrawal symptoms (laughs) from giving up cigarettes. And the notion of withdrawal systems reminds me strangely of RoboDebt. Can you mm. bring us up to speed with what's been happening at the Royal Commission, another Royal Commission? Another Royal Commission. This is the one that I think we really, 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 really needed because this, everyone thinks RoboDebt was Scott Morrison's idea, right? And that may well turn out to be the case. I don't think it was. It was uh, what we've heard so far is that this idea specifically to automatically go after this mountain of previous old discrepancies, quote-unquote, of, you know, data matching between income and welfare recipients' reported income, um, that was an idea that was cooked up within the Department of Human Services. Now, the coalition government at the time, they had a broad mandate. They said, we want to cut costs, we want to save, and it was always going to be welfare recipients that they go after. Um, But it just so happened that it was these um, public servants within the Department of Human Services who had the idea, they took the idea to the minister, the ministers signed off on it, and Department of Social Services um, had some concerns. Uh, And they actually got legal advice from November 2014, which said, this is illegal, you can't do it. And somehow, we're still getting to the bottom of this, somehow it went from November 2014 to in the budget in May 2015, trial June 2015, and then full scheme launch September 2016. Now, the second block of public hearings started, I think, this week. I did, yes. And you're following it? I am, and I've been following it. Um, it's been... The, the one thing that's really stood out to me, apart from everything else that we know about the fact that this was a political um, contrivance, really, to claw back money from poor people, is the attitude that allowed it to happen. And we saw it on the stand the first day back at this Block 2 hearing from a senior public servant who used to be in charge at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet of the Behavioural Insights Group. This is essentially using psychological tricks to influence or manipulate the behaviour of people um, that they're meant to be providing services for. And they used this on welfare recipients. And this bloke essentially said it's their fault for not understanding it. How could they not understand what we were doing to them? Rick, uh, I want to move on to business. You wrote earlier this year in the Saturday paper about how Qantas divested the entirety of its below-the-wing ground-handling business. Remind us. Yeah, so they basically got rid of everything that uh, happens at an airport that doesn't involve a plane being in the sky. So this is engineering, this is baggage handling, which they sold off to um, uh, Swiss Hotel in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, And this has been going on for a very long time, including from a year before Alan Joyce came along, where they would essentially... To get around union demands, they would create a different company, which was ultimately part of the holding company of Qantas. Oh, yes. And they would, so they'd have all these different entities that suddenly then were allowed to have different enterprise bargaining agreements. And so that's how they kind of divided and conquered the various unions. And they've, that's why they've got all these different agreements. And we had people on the one aircraft, staff on the one aircraft, being paid at entirely different, different rates, rates. Different rates. And, of course, they wanted to save money. And um, they got rid of all... 10,000, I think it was, from memory, um, jobs uh, and, you know, thousands of baggage handlers right when we're coming back to peak travel after being locked down. And, of course, they had these workshops... Um, over the school holidays going, how are we going to fix this? And they sent their executives down to, to store luggage. 
This was not, never anything to do with passengers who forgot how to fly. We had an airline that forgot how to fly, and that's pretty core cool business, I would have thought. Let's go back to you, James. I am guilty of giving Qantas the line, the spirit of Australia. I've tried to get Clora back, <laughs> but uh, they've refused to, to give it back to me. But you've actually put together a very good new ad for Qantas. We are now going to play it for the listener. Cancelled flights, lost luggage, unmanned airport desks and nights spent sleeping on cold airport floors. Millions of tears have been shed by our customers this year, thanks to Qantas. But those tears haven't gone to waste. We've captured every last drop to sell back to you as a very special limited edition souvenir. Presented in a beautifully designed bottle, we call it the Spirits of Australia, and it's yours to own for just $19.95, or 1.4 quadrillion frequent fire points. <laughs> Buy now for Christmas delivery in June next year. I'm going to have to give that another koala stab. I'm going to run out of them while we had this rate. Uh, good on you, James. Congratulations on that. Thank, Dana, thank you. on a more serious note, we lost a couple of legends, and I'm thinking of Archie. Archie Roach and Uncle Jack Charles. That must be something you've reflected on. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's this juxtaposition between we're making progress on Indigenous affairs, maybe, finally, um, but some of the people who have done a lot of the groundwork to get us to the position that we're in today are not going to see it eventuate because um, we still have such a big life expectancy gap in this country. Um, both Uncle Archie and Uncle Jack were young. They were, you know, a lot younger than the average Australian person is when they die. And it really hit communities very hard because these, have, these two men in particular have been figureheads and they have traverse that line between truth-telling and saying, you know, what happened to them was wrong. But also when you think of their contributions um, to things like music, to Uncle Jack in acting and comedy and the trail that they blazed for Indigenous people is an incredible legacy. And it's just incredibly sad that they're not going to be here to see a reckoning uh, for Indigenous people in this country. Incredible sadness too with the death of uh, Cassius Turi. It is. It's incredibly sad. And I, I don't want to say anything that could prejudice any potential legal proceedings around that. But I will say that the death of Cassius Turvey, on top of uh, the death last week of Diane Miller, an Indigenous woman who was struck by a concrete block in a car park and um, later passed away. And uh, another Indigenous woman, Colleen Calgaret, who was struck uh, this week by a police car while crossing the road. All three of these people are from Perth. I am thinking of Perth mob and holding them in my heart because they have been through it this year. And it's just our response as the media um, is pretty shocking. It's pretty appalling. They had to fight so hard to get Cassius Turvey's story told. Um, you know, there has been limited media coverage around what happened to Diane Miller. There's been barely anything on Colleen Calgaret, who, you know, the WA Police Commissioner said, if you're a pedestrian, because she was walking in the street when she was um, 
hit by a police car allegedly. Um, if you're a pedestrian, you know, you've got to take accountability for your own personal safety. Where is the national outcry for Indigenous people when we are hurt, when we are killed? It just seems to, you know, pass people by. And, you know, I know among among the community, it just comes back to another day in the colony. We're running out of time, but I have to raise one a terribly important topic. Not so long ago, I'd introduced the program by talking to Gladys, Potties and Tweethearts. <laughs> but for we Tweethearts, it's a grim period. Rick, how are you being sorely afflicted? I, look, I am, but in a good way, hopefully. I mean, I can't quit Twitter myself. Um, I need it taken away from me. And my best chance at having that done at the moment is Elon Musk. Um, hopefully he will destroy the website so that I can finally be free. What do you use it for? Look, do you know what? I, I joke about it, but it is really important for my job. Like I get a lot of news tips on there. I know what's going on and, you know, I'm making um, jokes about it, but it's really important for community organising and activism, which is where I see a lot of what's going on. But my problem is that I don't have an off switch and it's kind of like the pokies for me. <laughs> I just sort of, I'm drawn to it. Amy, I've got to invade your privacy. Are you uh, weaning yourself off Twitter? No, I'm not uh, because, you know, I have a fairly nice community on there, but I do, I have noticed a lot more trolling since Elon has taken over. Um, there's been a, a, a truckload of abuse being sent my way in my DMs and I don't think that I'm alone in that either. But I just feel a bit sad about what's happening with Twitter because like loneliness is a real issue in this country, uh, particularly during the pandemic, but even before that, people who report being lonely or not having community around them is increasing. And a lot of people have found that community because of Twitter. They've found people who have the same niche interests as them or, you know, are amused by the same things or care about the same things. And I think losing that community on top of everything else that people have gone through over the last couple of years with the pandemic is actually quite heartbreaking. Dana, you're the, the, the youngest of us. Will you advise the ancient broadcaster what he should do instead of Twitter? As the uh, obligatory young person, sure. Uh, first of all, Philip, can you please alert the National Archives uh, that your tweets need to be preserved for future generations? Because where else are we going to get such gems as Densa, Mensa for Dills, uh, photoshopped images of you with Donald Trump, your beautiful Musk takedowns such as Everybody, all together now, let's block Musk. <laughs> <laughs> and you're breaking was, alerts which hacked. rival the ABC. <laughs> I was hacked. I deny any responsibility. Um, look, I mean, people are moving to uh, TikTok, obviously. That's where a lot of things are going because people, and, you know, we have this conversation about, well, what about when TikTok dies, just like Facebook is sort of slowly dying um, and Instagram will likely go the same way at some point, right, because we, are, we get bored, we have a two second attention span. Vertical video is where it's at, Philip. So I would love to start seeing you making some UCG user generated content. Yeah, I forgot so. <laughs> <laughs> you could start your own hashtag. I mean, you know, the, the possibilities are so real. I'm happy to come on board as your socials <laughs> advisor. You know, this would be an incredible opportunity to deliver more Philip Adams to the next generation. Can I, can I just... 
Could I just say on hashtag, my uh, 15-year-old nephew the other day asked why there were hashtags on phones because uh, Twitter hadn't been around for that long and didn't understand <laughs> why there was a hashtag on the phone. Hang on, but why, like, why, why were they there even before that? I don't know. Uh, the I think it was something to Look, do when, like, excuse me, this is a summary of the year. <laughs> Stop going off in all different mad directions, James. I depend on you. What's this? What's this toctic business? It sounds like sixty minutes. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not an expert on toctic or TikTok for that matter. Um, I, look, I think one of the silver linings with this whole Twitter thing is that we've discovered that Elon Musk's ego is a renewable resource. So, <laughs> and I, I it's visible may, from outer space. It is. <laughs> So I think, you know, with with the Tesla cars in the future, he's just going to power them just through his, his own ego. Driving <laughs> a Tesla is like admitting you vote for Trump these days. I was say, it's yeah, of, it's a bad look. Yeah. It's a bad look. Sorry, everyone that has a Tesla. Well, look, I have to say, for the twits amongst us, we have to go out with a lament for Twitter. And it comes from none other than the ABC's Sammy J. But before we do... I'd like to end on a more optimistic note, hopefully, and hear what each of you will be up to in 2023. Dana. Referendum, referendum, referendum. That's my whole plan for next year, covering it, getting across it, both sides of the debate. Can I shamelessly use your platform and say to Late Night Live listeners, if you have questions or if there's things you want to see covered, please hit me up on Twitter while it still exists because we want to make sure we are answering the questions that you have, not the questions that people who live in this politics weird space have because there's enough of that going on. Rick, use the platform for yes. your own advantage. I'm moving back home to Queensland with my mum and I'm going to write my book. It's a novel. It's a novel. We haven't above. I know. I've had okay. the idea for a long time and hopefully it's not terrible. And you're going to stay off the fags, stay off the gas. I'm six months free of the smokers. I'm a non-smoker. Amy, you must have a huge year planned. <laughs> I'm just hoping to sleep, really. That's, that's my plan. It's a great goal. Just like, just, you know, just a little bit of sleep. That's all, that's all I'd like. This year has been just the cherry on top of a few just very sleepless disassociative years and I would just like to rest. James, uh, before we let you go, we should mention that your show, currently touring, will be on in Sydney on Friday. Is that correct? Sydney on Friday, that's right, and Perth on Saturday. And uh, any tickets left? Uh, there are a few left. There are a few left, so go out and grab them. Okay. <laughs> well, look, thank you all. It's been great fun. My guests have been... James Sheffield, head writer of the satirical news website The Shovel and co-creator of the live show we have mentioned, War on 2022, Amy Ramikas, Guardian Australian's political reporter, Dana Morse, federal political reporter for the ABC and sitting with me here, what's left of Rick Morton, <laughs> senior reporter for the Saturday paper. And uh, look... That's it for the week and for the year, and it's been a very tough year for the Little Wilders program. How we got through it, I will never know. But the great energiser has been our EP, Anna Whitfeld, and the producers, Anne Arnold, Catherine Zengera, Taryn Predko, and thanks for organising today. Taryn, well done. Sasha Fegan, Julie Street, Jackie Dent, and Margie Smithhurst. We'll be back next week with the very best of our programs in uh, 2022. 
But let's go out now with Sammy J's saying goodbye to Twitter. It's been a week since I left Twitter because of Elon Musk, that democratic platform that will soon become a husk. Because now it looks like anyone can buy themselves a tick. And Donald Trump is heading back. The whole thing makes me sick. But I refuse to pay a billionaire to have my say. So I'm taking my opinions and going on my way. But I miss that little bluebird. I miss my online life. I spent more time on Twitter than I did with my own wife. Tweeting and retweeting, always scrolling for my news. Listening respectfully to other people's views. It's been two weeks since I left Twitter. I'm not doing very well. People know my real name, and as far as I can tell, you're not allowed to shout at total strangers in the street or directly contact and abuse a female pro athlete. I saw a couple arguing and had to get involved. I didn't know the context, but I'm pretty sure I solved it with a pithy one-liner. I said, hashtag, see you later. Then I tried to cancel someone in the supermarket queue because I missed that little bluebird and the freedom it afforded me to bully public figures while my followers applauded me. But the real world's not the same. Outrage doesn't lead to fame. I made a racist joke at my cafe. But not one single person followed me that day It's been a month since I left Twitter Now I'm sleeping in a sewer Just to recreate the feeling of humanity's manure As I scribble my opinions on the back of toilet doors Please somebody read it or copy and repeat it I take it off its hinges and shove in someone's face Don't you think I'm clever? Tell me that's the case Cause I need the validation I'll pay any price Eight dollars a month Well that sounds pretty nice So now I'm back on Twitter, and I'm feeling mighty fine. You can find me at my handle, DarkLordFilthBear89. Elon, please forgive me, treat me rough and make me pay. Cause I love that little bluebird, so don't let it fly away. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.